0: Say
1: hi, hi everyone. Uh, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Today it's just me, Andy, uh, with a guest, uh, a fellow historian, Gabe Winant of University of Chicago. Um, Gabe, thanks for coming on with with me today. I guess. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so Gabe has a new book out called The Next Shift: uh, Colon, the Fall of industry and the rise of healthcare in Rust Belt America. So we'll be talking about that today. Um, I also want to talk about, you know, Gabe is, you know, if you look at his Twitter feed or if you look online, you'll probably see his bylines. In a lot of places, he's been in Descent, he's been in N Plus One, the New York Times recently. Um, and so if we have time, I also want to talk about this other essay he wrote two years ago, about this category known as the Professional Managerial Class, or PMC for short. It's, you know, it was, it was kind of in the zeitgeist two years ago, and it still seems to be in the zeitgeist, I think. Um, so I thought it might be useful to kind of talk about that um, as well. I, I, I want to start with some meta questions about, you know, like the topic and how you chose the topic and how you arrived at there. Just to give listeners a sense, though, of like what the book is, you know, just so they're not like, you know, waiting for five minutes to hear about what the book is about. Um, it's about Pittsburgh. It's about the kind of decline of the steel industry, starting from the 50s onwards, the rise of what do you call the care industry or the hospital work. It's kind of an economic history. I think it's mostly like a labor history, mostly about like, what do people do? Where do they work when they go to work these days in the United States? Um, and I think it's interesting to those who are not inherently interested in Pittsburgh or history, because I think you're getting at this question that is, you know, also in the zeitgeist of what is neoliberalism? What is deindustrialization? These are terms that are increasingly mainstream. You know, they've been mainstream in academia for a while, but especially more in media and politics the last few years. So it's good, I think, to, you know, that historians like you are kind of digging into this category and actually figuring out, like, what is neoliberalism? Um, so on that on that note, I thought I could just kind of begin by asking, like, how did you, in, in the most general sense, how did you come at this topic? Like, why Pittsburgh and why why these industries?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, there's a couple answers I'd give to that. I mean, one is a kind of um, practical and maybe even kind of political answer, which has to do with, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, I went to grad school in New Haven at Yale. And like I saw how these cities that supposedly had had these post-industrial, creative I and mean, professional class reinventions around universities and hospitals eds and meds as they often t- call it eds and meds. Um, education and medicine yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know I had you talk constantly about this reinvention um, like visibly that process involved tons and tons of people who are not you know like young hip gentrifier, computer programmers or graduate students or whatever it might be right uh yeah. like I, the, these are these are industries that involve very large workforces that are not part of that story so i was kind of interested to think about that as a way of thinking about urban and labor market transformation and in particular the potential social base of a kind of working class movement in the new economy um you know i guess i would say beyond that um you know i and i think this is the kind of deeper answer yeah what does it mean to think about the possibility of working class politics once the factory is gone right and can we can we do that can we identify sites of working class formation and you know potential solidarity and militancy in the absence of the kind of traditional material markers that have been associated with the workers movement and you know again institutions like hospitals and universities and these kinds of things I was involved in organizing graduate student un- union in my university. So I became very concretely kind of engaged with this, um, are just the biggest employers around in most cities, you know, and seemed to me to be the host of a, a potentially quite large workforce with at you know, least common enemies, if not common interests. So that was sort of what brought me to it. Pittsburgh just seemed like a good case study. I mean, I'd never been there before, before I did <laughs> this research. Yeah. It's the other side of the state from Philly, you know, it's like really yeah. far away. <laughs> Is uh, um,
1: When you grow up in Philly, do you think of Pittsburgh as like, uh, you know, like Springfield and uh, what was it, uh, the other town in, in, in the Simpsons? Shelbyville? Like, yeah, exactly. No, Shelbyville
0: it's, it's just over the bridge, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you yeah. know, it's like,
1: they're like your mortal enemies precisely because they, you share the same state with them and so on. No, right? no,
0: because Philly wants to think of itself, I think, being on an axis with New York and maybe DC yeah. and whatever, right? And so, like, Pittsburgh's not relevant. It's like, yeah, it's, okay. it's it's Cleveland. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for all intents and purposes. Yeah, um, no, I visited my friends there, uh, Paul
1: Johnson, who's at the University of Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. And once I was there, I was like, oh my God, I'm in Ohio right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so once you got there, what was the vibe? Like, did you feel like, um, I mean, you you thought it would be a good case study. Was that because you'd been reading about it? Was it because yeah. like
0: word of mouth or like? Well, there's a couple yeah. of reasons and they're associated and I could feel it even once I like showed up. Uh, you know, it's just a city that is like, made purely in the image of the second industrial revolution of the late 19th mm-hmm. century. Um, I mean, the reason there is a city there is, you know, these two rivers meet, right? The Allegheny and the Monongahela to form the, the Ohio. So it's the, it's the, the source of the Ohio river. Um, it's near coal fields in Appalachia and particularly high quality, uh, what's called Coke grade coal, which you use for metallurgical production. That's in Southwestern Pennsylvania where you, where they mine that. Uh, And then, you know, it's on the Ohio river to Mississippi river system for transportation. So uh, that's why the city emerged, especially after the civil war as the center of the iron and steel industry and then attracted immigrants and so on. And by the early 20th century, it was a um, like a stand in for the problems of industrial society and attracted all kinds of people to come study it and think about what does it mean? This transformation we're going through and that tradition from then to the, you know, the president, which my book is part of, I guess, uh, has generated just a tremendous archive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really, as you know, what historians look for, right? It's like, where right. are there documents I can use? So I think you could actually basically tell the same story about almost any industrial city. This just yeah. seemed like a really neat place for doing it. A neat yeah. in the sense of clean.
1: And were you already working on it when, you know, famously, you know, Trump gets elected on the on the strength of these swing states, Pennsylvania being one of them, and people finally discover, like, what do we do? Or, like, what do we... How do we make sense of these places, like... I guess Ohio is kind of usually red, but like Pennsylvania, which is like, was I think it was supposed to be blue, right? Yeah. And, and people are like, well, it's about the white working class or it's about deindustrialization in these places. Like, were you already thinking about that stuff in your, and then it was probably in a sort of evil sense, where you're thinking, this is good for my book because yeah. it makes Pennsylvania. Yeah.
0: yeah. This. I mean, I, yeah. Although it also drove me insane. Um, <laughs> you know, in part because, um, you know, that genre of journalism, like from 2016 where Hmm. the New York Times or Politico or whoever, like journey to a coal town or a steel town and they go to the diner infamously, there's like a million of these people read them. Um, Well, so I read these stories, uh, you know, I always do. And um, (laughs) if you like, one, if you pay attention to them, um, everyone who is, is a kind of former industrial worker in them is old. Right, and so actually, they're, what they're doing is they're interviewing older former industrial workers. Or mm-hmm. two if they're interviewing younger people who are active members of the workforce. They're typically not industrial workers because there aren't that many. Mm-hmm. And in fact, to a surprising degree, they're healthcare workers. Like mm-hmm. I, I have a whole collection of stories like this. I've all file of them where it's like John, <laughs> you know, Politico <laughs> like goes to Johnstown, PA, to talk about the steel industry, and who do they talk to? A nurse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, you know, this happens again and again and again, and no one ever notices it, right? Because like right. they're looking for the industrial worker, mm, right. um, and these people are essentially forcing their way into these stories from the outside, yeah, uh, just because there is so many of them,
1: yeah, yeah. So, in a sense, you are saying like the I don't know the the sort of the, the like the the, the social means, the, like the media slash political vision is still nostalgic and looking for that sort of hard hat carrying you know, sort of Simpson's uh, Fordist era worker
0: and uh, overlooking the fact that, you know, hiding in plain sight is the new working class. That's exactly right. And, yeah. you know, I think uh, if I can kind of make a historiographical point here. Yeah. yeah. Um, a little dangerous, but good. <laughs> you, can go, you can go for it. <laughs> um, you can cut it if you want. Yeah. Um, the um, That brings us to an important question and debate about what... Class is actually Mm -hmm. right, how class is defined, how it's constituted, and um, class has to be represented, right? To be meet, I mean, for another, for a variety of kind of uh working people at different points in the kind of uh involved in different kinds of labor processes within capitalism to constitute a class, right? There has to be something imaginary that they share, Mm -hmm. Mm um, and that, that brings you into the realm of representation. Um, Yeah. And even like metaphor and this kind of thing. And, um, you know, the sense that there is a kind of gap between how class is represented and how it's lived. Mm -hmm. And that gap is a political consequence because it limits our ability to polarize our politics on class lines.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, That was the real motivation of the book.
1: Which is to say that you felt like workers themselves saw themselves as one thing. But in, I don't know, I keep saying the median politicians, but like basically in mainstream representation, they did not see workers as workers see themselves. As, yeah,
0: as, I mean, I think workers see themselves as a million kinds of things, to be honest. Right. But yeah, I yeah, think, right, yeah, uh, yeah. and that's always true, but right. um, that in a kind of, we can say like hegemonic discourse, sure. if you want to, yeah, if yeah, you yeah, want to, yeah. you know, your media, rep- whatever. Um, yeah. yeah. Common sense. Common sense. Thank you. Gramsci and common sense yes. um, <laughs> it is uh, is out of touch yeah. with not necessarily how workers see themselves, but who workers are and what they're doing, right? Yeah, uh, and who they have, re- how they relate to one another, and how they relate to their employer, and that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, and that makes it very difficult to then try to constitute, uh, you know, new kinds of working class collective organization and experience and politics. Yeah, because there's not. A common sense that seems to represent right, uh, yeah, the kind of concrete realities of working class life.
1: The other thing I wanted to ask though was uh, and you know this is also perhaps dangerous to talk about historiography I think there is something happening though within history departments that mirrors what's happening in society at large right which is that I think we can basically say there's been a rise of talk about to be like kind of openly progressive and to talk about economic stuff from the left, um, you, know, uh, you know, social media, but now it's like seeping into like mainstream publications. And I'm sure uh, lots of people hear about it on, on their podcasts or their uh, on NPR or something. Um, and I think the turning point is 08, right? The financial crisis and then Occupy. And then maybe you could go back to like Seattle in 99, but I really think 08 is the turning point. Um, and this is also true for historians that I think, you know, 10, 20 years ago, a book that was, I mean, I guess it's a question for you. Ten, twenty years ago, do you feel like in the sort of the part of academia you're in? Because you know, you do US history, I do kind of global history, and kind of I think we're not exactly the same generation, but maybe one or two years off. Um that ten or twenty years ago, a book about the steel industry and about the working class might have sounded a little bit unfashionable, right? Oh yeah. Right. And
0: I mean, then remember,
1: yeah, oh yeah. So like I guess. Was there a moment for you where you? I mean, it sounds like you went into grad school knowing you wanted to work on this stuff. Um, so, was there a moment uh, earlier than that where you were like, I don't know, I don't know if red pill is the right, but like, kind of turned on to like thinking about class politics because I think the average United States college student and would be academic does not think about class politics and has not really thought about it that much. Um, or not to the same degree as they have in the last 10 or 15 years. I guess that's a long winded way of saying like, it was like a personal journey for you to to think about this
0: stuff. Sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, again, I guess I would answer it at a couple levels, you know, like one, I mean, I grew up in some way in a kind of left-wing family, but my parents were the new left. My dad is a professor. Um, So elements are kind of in, you know, in circulation. And as I was growing up, although, you know, my parents were also like members of the professional managerial class. Right. Yeah. Um, by you know going further back i mean they're like you know i my, my family were jewish immigrants and there's kind of like socialist lower east side type history you know on my mom's side in particular um but that the real answer is uh so i'm 34 uh i was in college from 2004 to 2008 um i got to college being like okay i come from this left-wing family like george bush is bad i wanted Howard dean to be president like mm-hmm. that, that formation yeah um and something that I thought could explain that for me was, like, what's the matter with Kansas, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there, they're, and this, you know, it, I think for a lot of people, there's a version, you know, roughly of yeah. our age group, there's a version of this journey, right? Where you, um, coming out of a kind of, like, left liberal, middle class left liberalism, that was the, yeah. detriti- self, the detritus of the new left, Um you know, you then recognize George W. Bush and kind of like grassroots conservatism, maybe evangelicalism as uh, having a kind of class basis of a certain kind, at least partly, right, being rooted in some amount of white working class support that seems challenging to your ideas of uh, how politics is supposed to work. And then, you know, I came out of this to a kind of Thomas Frank informed idea about like false consciousness, basically. Mm-hmm. That That's more or less, you know, I mean, where it was at when like the financial crisis happened. Yeah. Um
1: and, and the then, basic you, thesis is like most Americans should vote Democrats, but they vote against their own self-interest because yeah. of or, abortion or, or, debates or something. Working like, class
0: people, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, are are kind of turned around and and uh, and essentially tricked right. by by so you know what we call kind of cultural issues. Right. Um, and uh, you know that like the solution to this is therefore, you know, uh, for kind of mainstream center-left. Politics, which is, I think, basically, you know, Frank's horizon um, yeah. for mainstream center left politics yeah. to to uh, rediscover a Roosevelt type, you know, kind of populism, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or maybe a William Jennings Bryan type populism, but some kind of that, some you know, some kind of economic populism yeah, yeah. in place of, uh, you know, and that would displace the right. kind of culture wars of our yeah. of our politics. So this is sort of what I thought. Um, And then it kind of started to blend in a kind of confusing way for me with an interest in Marxism that was being driven by the, you know, basically by the the housing bubble, the financial crisis as I was finishing college. And then, you know, bouncing around for a couple of years and then in graduate school, Um, because Frank had at least gotten me to think about the category uh, of class in some way i don't think he really thinks about class the way that i i do it yeah, all sure. <laughs> but you know he got me to think about it some and to start looking for ways of understanding it um and you know then the kind of meltdown of the economy the inability to like deal with that uh politically you know made me think more about okay what does it mean for class to be a category of political identification and you know I mean, I can tell you more about the minutia of my own intellectual journey, but that's the basic outline. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Do you feel like um, in your experience, though there was this, there has been a shift within academia, or yeah, sorry, that was your question. (laughs) No, yeah, or just like no, but I I mean, that's no, that's I mean, I think that's totally relevant. And then, I mean, I had the same kind of. I don't know if I like am paranoid, but I kind of wonder if uh, maybe I'm too paranoid. Like I, I feel like you know, like Marxism and talking about political economy is considered. Um was definitely considered out of fashion you know out of fashion in the 2000s maybe by now it's not maybe by now uh, you know grad students everywhere seems like mostly students of the United States history are kind of leading the charge and um, foregrounding this qu- this re- I don't know if it's a return or a new question about like what is capitalism let's tell the history of capitalism um, and all that stuff like do you feel like that's totally totally okay now for 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 like the next generation of academics and that they're going to kind of displace this, um, I don't want to offend anyone, but kind of like boomer obsession with cultural studies. And that that was kind of the, the thing that was happening in the nineties.
0: Yeah. I mean, I partly agree with that. You know, I do think definitely, um, the relative kind of taboos that you're talking about were real or the sense at least of what was fashionable or not. I mean, I remember being a you know, young graduate student and going to a conference and saying I was interested in labor history to a I don't remember who it was, but some senior person. And literally this person saying to me, they're still making that. <laughs> um, and that you know is obviously connected to ideas about like the working class doesn't exist anymore and this kind mm. of thing um but to the broader question i mean certainly you're certainly right that there's a kind of recovery or revival of marxism that's been underway across you know all kinds of arenas now for mm. you know at least 10 years maybe more um not sure it really originates in academia i think it originates more uh i mean in social struggles of certain kinds. And then, you know, in a kind of popular discourse and then that there's a kind of blurry area between like graduate programs, social media, you know, magazines, that that I feel like that is really that, you know, at the intellectual level, that's really the origin of it. Um, It's hard for me to say how, how taboo it is or not now. I mean, I think, um, I think my work is pretty easy to read as as being, you know, springing from, the Marxist sure. tradition in some kind of way, it so far hasn't come back to bite me, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, you know, I also like did my PhD at Yale, and like, you know, yeah. have various ways that like the hierarchy of the academic industry shields me. So that's yeah, uh, yeah. Very true for everyone. Um,
1: yeah, i thought about that too. It's like, I mean, not to get too like navel gazing, but yeah, it's like maybe the victory is honestly to make um, not not to make these like elite institutions the target and the arena of every struggle, but like. If you can t- if you can flip those places instead of kind of making them the enemy, like that's that's good, right? To to, to get well, I think the
0: institutions themselves. I mean, their sure. function is to reproduce the ruling class, and the institutions right. themselves are like, as, as, you know, as a institution is, I think, always going to do that. But you know, I think that it's meaningful to engage in intellectual struggle within them and to gain ground within them, certainly, and that's always been true in past episodes of um, yeah, you know, academic academic radicalism,
1: yeah. Okay, so why don't we just kind of jump into the book? And I know you've talked. We won't go through it, in, you know, in, in too much detail because I know it's it's a four hundred page book. It's very detailed. It's very uh, well researched, and there's lots of moving parts uh, in there. I think the kind of key moments uh, is, or I guess I want to ask you, like, what do what do you think are like, the kind of the key takeaways? Um, you know, like let's kind of just start with, you know, you begin with not the heyday of steel, not necessarily like steel as this like really heroic enterprise as it's nostalgically remembered. You kind of start with actually in the 50s, at the, in, uh, what we think of as the heyday, steel was already in crisis um, in, in hindsight, right? And um, so, that's, so that's kind of where you begin. Like, what, what do we have to know about this period that kind of gets romanticized in, in U.S. history?
0: Yeah. Um, so, right, the steel industry, in fact, reaches uh, its sort of maturity in the 20s. And if you, one interesting way of seeing this is that, um, if you look at the population of the steel towns surrounding Pittsburgh, so there's some steel mills in Pittsburgh proper, but mainly the mills were in the kind of first ring of towns surrounding it. Uh, and if you look at the population of those towns of which Homestead is the most famous name because of the labor battle that happened there, um, the populations all peak in 1920 or 1930 and then decline steadily thereafter, uh, which is interesting, right? Um, I mean, that that tells us for one thing that Pittsburgh didn't have that much of a second great migration, right? The second Mm. pulse of migration of African-Americans to the South, which greatly enlarged cities like Detroit, Oakland, Los Angeles, New York, Philadelphia, didn't really happen in Pittsburgh. That's because it was kind of one big industry and that industry was no longer growing. Um, So by the mid 50s, basically once the Korean War is over, um, employment begins to... Be, enters a kind of long-term secular decline. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's cyclical optics, but it enters a long-term secular decline. And already by the late '50s, there's a manifestation of what would be, come to be known in the '70s, in the you know death pangs of neoliberalism, as stagflation, mm-hmm. um, the kind of, the simultaneous increase of unemployment and inflation, which are supposed to be uh, inversely correlated. And this was closely associated with the steel industry, in particular. Uh, the way that it was techno- technologically obsolescent, oligopolistic in its organization, therefore passing on its cost to customers, driving inflation, um, unable to keep up with its labor costs. And uh, this, you know, in turn framed very intense industrial conflict in the industry. The largest strike in U.S. history in terms of like person hours idled was the 1959 steel strike, which is about a half a million workers for about four months. Um so, uh, all that's to say that deindustrialization is a generational process, right? It's not an episode in the late seventies and early eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, between 1950 and 1980, Pittsburgh lost half of its steelworker workforce.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that is really important for understanding the kind of transformation of the population itself over time, which is a real category of analysis in the book, um, as well as a transformation of the labor market.
1: Yeah. Are there, are there similar industries? I like, I, think, I almost feel like steel and Pittsburgh are sort of the most famous example. I guess cars in Detroit um, would be the other one in U S history, but yeah, are there other similar examples of sort of quote unquote, one industry cities that undergo a similar process like to what extent is steel in pittsburgh you have very good specific analysis my question i guess is how singular is it is or is this kind of being mirrored and and, you know modular for the much many cities around the rest of the us
0: yeah so there's two kinds of answer to this one is about industries uh and basically all manufacturing undergoes some version of this process over the course of the 50s 60s and 70s even before the rapid fall off in the 80s that's it, it varies a little bit by different industries you know in some cases like in steel it's about uh, competition overseas uh the recovery in yeah. particular of german and japanese steel making um right in some cases it's about in less capital intensive industries like textiles or even auto assembly to some degree it's about runaway shops so uh that's fact yeah it's capital leaving for lower runaway low, shops
1: meaning oh so like capital flight to other countries
0: yeah or even lower wage parts of the u.s and then eventually to oh, mexico okay. or overseas yeah. um and so, you know, the exact kind of pattern yeah. by which uh, industrial employment in the North and Midwest disintegrates varies by industry and the yeah. distribution of in, of these industries across cities. Some cities are really specialized, like Pittsburgh, like Detroit. Yeah. Um, you know, Akron is a, is a rubber city. A ton mm-hmm. of New England cities are textile towns. Yeah. Uh, and some places are like New York, Philadelphia or Chicago are somewhat more diversified. Yeah. Um, but the overall pattern is basically shared, that the kind of portion of the northern urban workforce involved in manufacturing is mm-hmm. undergoing this pretty steady decline across the entirety of the post-war period. Yeah. The degree and the pace at which that doles out economic pain depends some on the kind of local diversity of the local economy, but not totally. I mean, like even New York and Philly, very yeah. diverse local economies, yeah. are still very heavily industrial economies. And so, yeah. you know, Longshore is laying off this year. Garments are laying off next year. Same yeah. kind of story, even if it's not one industry. Yeah.
1: What was the, I've actually been trying to figure this out because I've been in Philly for the last six years. What,
0: what was it like textiles in North Philly? That was like the main, there was a non-trail. ton of stuff. There was a ton of stuff in Philly. Um, yeah. it was, there was never one industry city. It was textiles. Um, uh, yeah. Um, carpets. And, <laughs> right. I mean, that's part of textiles. Yeah. Um, there, you know, there's kind of shipping, there's some shipping stuff along the river. There's, yeah. uh, I mean, there was a steel mill in Trenton. Uh, um, there. Right, yeah, exactly. There's some and auto- Cam-
1: Camden had RCA apparently.
0: Yeah. Camden right. had RCA. Uh, yeah. Jefferson Cowie has a great book about, about okay. the history of RCA. Um, yeah, and Camden is just like, you know, I cross over
1: there all the time and it's like the, yeah, it's just like a dictionary definition of a deindustrialized city.
0: Yeah, Camden also had a Campbell suit. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. So what is that transition? Like, what is the difference between working at a steel mill? Um, in the fifties and sixties versus where we wind up by the end of the book, which is working in the care industry and
0: in hospitals and so on. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really careful to, and I'll, in the book and I'll reiterate here to not be nostalgic about industrial work, right? There are various things that made it amenable to uh, workers, collective power in different ways. And that's important, but it was horrible to do. I mean, it's mm-hmm. horrible to work in a steel mill. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was incredibly hot and dangerous and scary. And like that, I mean that's not just looking back on it, right? That's really how people experienced it. I mean the ritual of like you have to go get a drink after your shift every single time was real and it existed mm-hmm. because like people needed to calm their nerves. Um, yeah, in one way or another, right? Um, I mean the you know or to, I mean, there's a guy I quote in the book who describes how he had to have a shot of whiskey after his shift to wash the taste of gas out of his mouth. Mm. Um, yeah, which alone itself tells you know, tells you something about what this work is like. Um, yeah. Nonetheless, right, it's characterized as many forms of industrial production were by um, you know the possibility of economic leverage for labor. What's um, created by you know its vertical integration, right? So steel was made in these huge vertically integrated plants uh, that took in coal and iron, basically, and put out steel. Um, and so we're you know. In some way vulnerable to work stoppage, had assembled enormous workforces so you know large, large groups of workers could kind of become organized together, um and you know, were under the National Labor Relations Act regime in the you know after the thirties. Yeah. Um and moreover, being a form of industrial production, steel did, I mean, for all that it stagnated in terms of its productivity relatively, right? It still did kind of benefit from some amount of ongoing productivity increase, um, which generated a kind of growing surplus that then made it possible for labor to claim a portion, right? And that was, that was the basic formula of like the post-war labor capital compact such as it existed was that, you know, uh, industrial production is getting more efficient over time then capital can profit while paying labor more every year. Right, and you know that everybody wins. If the pie gets bigger, then yeah, workers can
1: have more of the pie right. in absolute terms. Maybe not necessarily in relative terms, but they'll yeah. get more. Right, yeah.
0: Um, now, in healthcare, uh, a lot of these features are absent. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I mean, hospitals—you could say—are sort of vertically integrated in a certain way. It's a kind of complicated thing that we could talk more about, um, but they're much harder to shut down. Right, they don't seem to yield the same kind of economic leverage to workers, uh, and certainly, like nursing homes and home care, and the more peripheral, labor-intensive parts of the healthcare industry, have this problem even more so. They're labor-intensive, as I just said, uh, yeah. right? So there's less capital that you can uh, interrupt the turnover cycle of. Um, they historically have stood outside of the kind of protected area, the regulated area of the economy. And even once they eventually got included into it, there remained legacies of their, you know, lack of protection under, under labor law. Um, they most significantly in economic terms, healthcare is, doesn't really benefit in a clear way from steady productivity increase. So therefore it doesn't have this kind of positive sum cycle available to it. And instead labor capital conflict is defined by a zero sum dynamic. Right. Right. Um,
1: so, I mean, maybe if I could kind of hopefully yeah, yeah. translate
0: this into maybe more
1: <laughs> non-economic terms, There's, like in steel, in theory, right? You can just build these robots or not robots, like better technology will lead to greater profits. And that also means the possibility for the workforce to like go on strike one day and really like screw over the bosses and they will therefore capitulate to demands. At a hospital, A, you can't really build a robot that replaces a hundred nurses. You just have, you just need a hundred nurses, right? To, to go to work every day. Therefore, the profits aren't going to be that great. Like you can't really upgrade. Uh, I mean, you can to to an, to an extent, but certainly not to the extent of like having a robot that makes an automobile for you instead of a human being. And then uh, the flip side, then, if 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 nurses or healthcare workers go on strike, they might have some success. But if the hospitals can just kind of, um, I don't know, does it just sound like could they just hire non-union workers, or maybe yeah, they're just not they protected do. in unions, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and you know, it's also the case that uh, because the opportunities for profit are less in these industries, yeah. Yeah. Um, they've always drawn on more marginal fractions of the working mm-hmm. class for their workforce. That's to say, mm-hmm. specifically, women, people of color, immigrants. Yeah. depends on where you, the configuration depends on where you are in the country. That's closely connected to why labor law didn't protect them for many yeah. years, right. um, and uh, that becomes very uh, politically and you know, kind of culturally challenging when these workers try to stand up for themselves. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, th- the idea that workers would like a bunch of women and African-Americans would shut down a hospital. I mean, you, it, they're not allowed actually to shut down the hospital. Um, and like, like, even though they now have some union protect- protections under the law, uh, yeah. if they want to organize, like there's a whole set of rules about how like, okay, you can go on strike, but you can't actually shut down the hospital. Right. Um, the other flip side of this would be then: Why does the industry expand in the seventies
1: and the eighties? You're kind of talking about this just now with the inflationary spiral of how of how healthcare gets so expensive, you know, in the way that we are all familiar with today. And I'm not exactly quite clear about like all this all the steps. So, like, do you want to spell out like, what are the kind of key key milestones in that story of how yeah. healthcare became so you know fucking expensive?
0: Yeah. So uh, I start the story in the aftermath of World War II. Uh, so prior to World War II, health insurance was not a widely existing thing. I mean, it existed, but it wasn't like most people didn't have it in like the 1920s and 1930s, basically invented in the 20s and 30s. Most people didn't have it. Um, and, you know, you basically went to the hospital to die uh, if you were poor. <laughs> yeah. um, and, um, you know, it had been tried at a few points in history in the 1910s and again, kind of in the 30s to include it in the welfare state unsuccessfully the commission that wrote the social security act if you read their report they're like okay we're going to deal with old age we're going to deal with unemployment we're going to deal with you know what we call welfare now uh age-dependent children at the time and they say you know someone should really deal with um health insurance that really should be in this but we kind of can't do that right now (laughs) um we'll get to it later yeah Um, so it's part of that new deal vision but it wasn't included yet exactly um So in the 40s, Harry Truman, after the war, Harry Truman tries to make good on this. And he proposes basically what we would now call Medicare for all, right? It's the same moment that the British are establishing the NHS. Mm -hmm. Um, And for various reasons, mainly having to do with the kind of onset of the Cold War and the weakening of the New Deal, and particularly the kind of left wing of the New Deal in the face of the Cold War, that doesn't work. And instead, his main social base in that campaign, which are the industrial unions, the steel mm-hmm. workers, the auto workers, the miners, and so on, um, who are undergoing their own kind of setbacks, say, you know what? All right, we're going to keep our nominal support for this, as they do still mainly today. Um, but we're going to kind of withdraw our real fighting strength from this campaign. And instead, we're going to turn to our employers to prov- to bargain healthcare with us. Um so over the course of the late 40s, yeah. and early 50s, that model spreads across industry. It's in a steel industry uh, case in 1949 that the court system says, yes, actually so-called fringe benefits are a mandatory component of collective bargaining. And in a period when about a third, a little more of private sector workers are unionized, that becomes the mechanism by which mm-hmm. health insurance proliferates across mm-hmm. American society. Um so the key point to take away from this beginning of the story is uh, it's in the private sector, right? This mm-hmm. is this really weird thing. It's like the private sector employment. Right. And we all are like, why is it so weird that you get your your insurance from your job in this country? Yeah. That's like something that the you know United Steelworkers of America gave to us, not mm-hmm. on purpose exactly, but it is. Right, because um,
1: the consequences, as you kind of say at the beginning, this creates a dual labor market, right, between – those who get all the privileges of like the best jobs, and then but the flip side, of course, is if you don't have one of the best jobs, you might not get insurance. You might not get you know all these sort of protections and so on. And right,
0: so forth. unless you can be a wife or a kid of someone who has one of these jobs. Right, that's the right. route to yeah. security for the industrial for the working classes: industrial employment or kinship with an industrial employee. Right. Um, yeah. So once that's happened, uh, that begins to set in motion the first cycle of healthcare inflation, not really an existing thing before the 1950s, but over the course of the 50s, places like Pittsburgh, they now have these big insured markets and hospitals think, you know, shit, we should like upgrade, right? We should expand. We should build a new wing. We should install two uh, two bed rooms. That's an mm-hmm. innovation in this period, as opposed to the mm-hmm. ward with like 40 people in it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's in the steelworkers health insurance contract, right? That the, yeah. you get, If you go to the hospital under this contract, you get, a, you get to be in a room with only one other person. Um, mm. So the hospitals then all decide we should build those. Mm. Um, and the cost starts to rise. Yeah.
1: Because who, who pays for it? It's the employer. Who, well, I guess the insurance company pays for it based on what the employer pays the insurance right. company. And there's no, like, there's, there's basically a blank check that's like once, I'm once, not a blank check, but it's sort of like uh, this guarantee that we're just going to pay for whatever the hospital says we need to pay.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's like every, what's crazy is like every year though, I mean, it's so unimaginable in our moment now. Uh, like the steel worker plan just gets better and better and better. By 1959, yeah. they have to make no contribution to their premium, um, which is yeah, like, wow. you know unthinkable for us. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, so as costs rise with this, uh, it starts to price out the elderly and the poor. Uh-huh. who, for obvious reasons, you know, the poor, by definition, right, are not part of these, this, this labor market. And the elderly, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, are not part of this labor market. So that's why we we get Medicare and Medicaid, right? Like the, the cost cycle created by the rise of insurance creates political pressure. The government steps in in 1965 in the form of Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, but crucially, it doesn't step in in a way to displace the existing private system, right? It just rounds it out it just adds something on the margins for people who aren't part of it and the government steps in not as a provider doesn't set up hospitals for the poor it sets up an insurance program so it's a buyer of services and Mm. this speeds up the blank check dynamic you were describing even more right because you now have this huge stream of public money yeah uh flowing directly into into hospitals and and medical practices right um so that's the kind of key institutional setup. Now that system then encounters deindustrialization. Um, deindustrialization does a few things. It makes the population older. Uh, young people leave right when they mm. can't get jobs. Mm. And moreover, that giant cohort that existed in the '40s and '50s when the steel mill was at, you know, steel industry was at its peak, never gets replaced. Mm. So uh, you have this huge cohort approaching retirement in the seventies not being replaced in generationally either in at their job or even just in the population as a whole population is therefore aging really rapidly. This happens across the Rust Belt, although it's very pronounced in Pittsburgh, these places get old as they get old, they get sicker, right? Mm -hmm. Old people are, old people are generally sicker. Um,
1: Especially ones that used to work in a factory.
0: Yeah. Uh, They get poorer. Um, I mean, like a population losing, you know, the portion of its jobs, which are these good industrial jobs, it, it's becoming a poorer population. Um, as that's all happening, it drives increased use, utilization, as they call it in, in health economics, of the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, was an amazing thing for me to discover. Was that like Through the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, steel workers and their families just like use the living shit out of the healthcare system. <laughs> um, they just go constantly. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like. I can't blame them. Yeah. And you can't blame them. Right. I try to understand, I remember trying to understand what was this about? And yeah, you raised like the industrial illness question, which I think is part of it, although it's true yeah. also of their families. So, yeah. You know, maybe the region as a whole has a kind of, uh, I mean, I think there's re- good reasons to think the region as a whole is sicker because of pollution actually. Yeah. So okay. like lung disease is important. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think the real effect is social. And the reason mm-hmm. the social effect is that a population that is getting older and poorer and sicker um, the, is losing its kind of its, the systems of social reproduction on which it's depended so far. In other words, daughters maybe used to take care of old family members, but now daughters might have to go get a job of their own because their husband yeah. can't get a job in the steel mill, right yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, Or maybe they move away with their husband who can't get a job in the steel mill. And now there's no daughter there to watch grandpa. I'm mean, going to be a little reductionist sure, here, but this yeah. is basically how it works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but like, you know, grandpa's arthritis is acting up and someone needs to go cook for him for a week. What do you do? Well, he has retiree benefits because he used to work down at the mill. So like check him into the hospital, basically. Yeah. And yeah. people, you know, what, uh, what's happening is people use the hospital system yeah. as long-term care. So that causes the system to balloon.
1: Right.
0: Um and by the end of the 1970s, on the eve of like really rapid and calamitous deindustrialization, uh, already health, uh, Pittsburgh has more healthcare workers per capita than I think any city in the country at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, has a significantly more you know hospital beds per capita. It's just the system is built out to service yeah. this demand, um, and uh, you know in all kinds of measures, P- Pittsburgh people just use more healthcare than the national mean. I like yeah. to give the figure that um, in 1979, Pittsburgh generated 1. 1.6 hospital inpatient days per capita. So to break that down, what that means is if everyone in the region went to the hospital, the same amount as each other, right? Everyone does, yeah. uses the hospital the same amount. Everyone would have spent 1.6 days in the hospital that year.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, That's triple our national rate currently. Mm. Um and obviously, you know, everyone didn't go the same amount. What happened was a lot of people yeah. went for a really long time and most people didn't go at all. Uh, so that's just like a very big healthcare system that, they, that was right. developed. And the argument of the book, I'll stop this long answer by saying the argument sure. of the book is that um, this has to be understood as a privatized expansion of the welfare state absorbing the social damage of deindustrialization, right? Because of the particular weird way that this industry, the healthcare industry is set up. It's in a position to soak up income and demand and labor and capital mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is dislodged by the process of industrial decline. Yeah. Uh, and it feeds on that and grows, even as everything else around it is collapsing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed, you know, at least two points in the book, you're citing um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's Golden Gulag book, because I think I was actually thinking of the analogy also, when i was reading your book and she makes i think you're both making the similar argument that with neoliberalism and deindustrialization all these sort of loss of jobs around the country in the 70s and 80s you also had this uh, ethos of austerity that the government needs to spend less right so there's only so many um, sort of rooms for growth in the economy or or you know for for more employment or for you know greater public spending in general and the public in general did not want to you know, famously didn't, doesn't want to spend on a lot of stuff. And this is like Reaganomics and austerity politics. Two sort of exceptions were one prisons, which were kind of justified as not a economic measure, but as a sort of, you know, protect you from like big bad criminals measure in, in yeah, California. Social control. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and yours is like, well, hospitals expanded uh, not as an economic measure, but as a sort of like, I guess the, the, the momentum of the healthcare industry dynamic, Created, created by private insurance and created by Medicare Medicaid. Um, these were both ways in which taxpayers continued to spend money for the expansion of something in a moment in the 80s when in general tax, people felt like we should actually pay fewer taxes and not have big government. You know, famously, you know, Reagan is against big government and so on and so forth. And not to like equate prisons with hospitals, right? Although I kind of thought like another, another Foucault point there, right? Yeah. Uh, 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 this is, this is, you know, you know, Gilmore's argument is like, what happened with to, to explain the expansion of prisons, you have to look back at the what happened with the creation of a so-called surplus population, right? The sort of people who are left unemployed after deindustrialization, and that seems to be also, you know, the analogy is kind of with what with what you're saying that the hospitals, in a lot of ways, were providing care and kind of soaking up a lot of, you know, the the, the demand for hospitals came from a lot of the same so-called surplus population, people kind of left behind by deindustrialization so it, you know you said just just i think just now you called uh, hospitals sort of like in this weird position or this kind of exceptional position and i think like the other you know, analogy would be i mean prisons i mean yeah is, I is mean, it's, a, it's quick, an
0: analogy i make explicitly in the book yeah um, i mean i think it's tricky because as you say like you know i don't think prisons should exist i think hospitals should exist yeah yeah exactly. um, <laughs> but uh, i think nonetheless we can uh, we can draw this analogy that is exactly about the creation of surplus population, the question of how the state is going to manage surplus population, mm-hmm. um, the political and economic resources that are available for it to do so, uh, which, you know, aren't summoned up in a vacuum, right. But draw on existing institutions, existing social interests, uh, that could be remobilized for that challenge, and so you use, I think I like the, word, the way I use the word momentum to describe this, which is exactly yeah. right. Um, you know, no one sat around and was like, "You know, it would be a good way of dealing with deindustrialization. Let's grow the fucking hospitals." That right, doesn't right, make right. any sense, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it makes a little more sense from a cold perspective around prisons, but uh, yeah, yeah you know, exactly. like not, you know, you can sort of imagine someone thinking that from that perspective, kind of. Um, yeah. But you know, it yeah, just
1: these are these are impersonal processes; these, these are just right, large forces, exactly.
0: Right? Um and you know, I mean it is it is a I think I do think about it in terms of biopolitics actually, right? That the state Hmm. uh is involved in shaping the population, keeping parts of it alive, managing the rate of death of parts of it, basically, which is what the healthcare system as well as the prison system they both do that, right? Right. Um you see this parallel most clearly actually where they start to converge when you look at nursing homes. Which, you know, I think, yeah. like, we have to be honest, nursing homes are quasi-carceral institutions. I'm not yeah. saying they shouldn't exist fully. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it makes it, we want some kind of long-term care, certainly. Uh, but nursing homes are a form of warehousing of the old and disabled to a significant degree. Yeah. Um, and, you know, understaffed nursing homes, which became an epidemic in Pittsburgh at various yeah. points.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, the way that understaffing plays out in an abusive nursing home, which can happen in understaffed and under, under-resourced environments is exactly when you know, like staff begin to immobilize patients. That's, that's hmm. basically what nursing home abuse typically is. Is yeah. staff. There are not enough of them to manage the workload and the demands on them. And so they begin to physically or chemically immobilize patients. Oh boy! Um, yeah. And then you like, you can see the parallel really clearly in that situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with, with regards to nursing homes, the other thing I was thinking of was that, you know, this is obviously a huge scandal, especially in New York State, but just around the country that COVID spread in nursing homes. And we actually discovered a lot of nursing homes were kind of run in a very, uh, let's just say, unregulated manner. Right. And I was and at the time I was like, what is the explanation for why these places are kind of run this way? And I think your book is kind of getting at an answer with that. Uh, in particular, the, I forgot, the PPS, the
0: 1983 law. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a 1983 law that kind of really accelerates healthcare, the healthcare industry's incentives to kind of prioritize some types of work, some types of operations or some types of care and deprioritizes, I'm guessing, you know, what eventually gets taken up by elderly care. Um, yeah. As, and then it also therefore rewards big hospitals and punishes poor hospitals. So that's kind of like the final step in the story. Do you want to kind of spell that out?
0: Yeah, sure. So the kind of momentum of the growth of the healthcare industry in response to creeping deindustrialization through the 60s and 70s really speeds up in the late in the early 80s when like manufacturing falls off a cliff after the Volker yeah. shock Reagan is president all of these all of these dynamics aging population getting sicker population getting poorer dramatically accelerate it really speeds up use of the use and growth of the healthcare system and this shows up in Washington in the form of concern about healthcare costs, yeah. uh, particularly outlays for Medicare, yeah, uh, right, which has typically been the that's typically been the medium by which we negotiate these kind of social and political questions about who cares for whom is through the question of cost. Um, so Congress acts in 1983 to try to restrain the growth of, in particular, Medicare outlays, I and mean, Medicare is a huge portion of the entire healthcare economy. Um, by changing the mechanism by which the federal government reimburses providers. And this is like, I know this is the kind of thing that people glaze over when they hear, but it's actually really important. So I'll try to be clear about it. Um, So from 65 to 83, Medicare reimbursed, Medicare paid hospitals and nursing homes um, to some degree, so-called retrospectively. That meant that, you know, the hospital did the procedure. They kept the person however long they kept them, right? And then, like, the accounting office basically looked over what happened, tallied up how much it cost the hospital, and then they sent Washington a bill for 102% of that. Um, that, for obvious reasons, created incentives for growth and for doing more, for keeping people longer. Um, yeah. Right? If you're just going to get right. 102% of whatever you cost you incurred, incur as much cost as you can. Yeah, give uh, everyone
1: like 20 X-ray tests and all that, right? Yeah.
0: Um although it was less in terms of testing interestingly than it was in terms of like keeping people in beds, having a mm-hmm. like big stuff, it was labor intensive. Yeah, yeah. Um right. so Congress switches it in 83 to a called so called prospective payment system uh which basically I mean they instruct health and human services to come up with a list of I think it's 467 possible diagnoses. And it's like, these are all the things you can have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, exactly. It's like a menu. Yeah, this is the menu. Um, And when you admit a patient to a hospital, pick which one they have um, and you'll see that there is a price attached to it. And like, that's what you're going to get. Now you can keep them as long as you want. You can deal with them however you choose, knowing that this is how much you're getting paid. Um, The purpose of this is to introduce market discipline to an industry that has thus far not been characterized by it uh, to encourage competition and specialization. And what happens is that big kind of fancy academic, typically metropolitan hospitals Mm -hmm. um, benefit from the system. Their their margins go up because they are in a position financially and operationally to be able to provide and to increasingly provide very technologically and scientifically intensive forms of intervention uh so in pittsburgh the famous example of this is transplants um the kind of fanciest hospital in pittsburgh becomes like a world leader in liver transplants which are really difficult and complicated and very costly um but get reimbursed at a very very high rate um the kind of thing I was describing earlier, the community hospitals that were basically all across the street from the steel mill in each of the steel towns that they specialized in, they're like, yeah, bring them down. We'll keep them for two weeks. We'll see what happens. Yeah. That, <laughs> like that becomes completely uneconomical under this system. Yeah. Um, right. Because if you're admitting him for arthritis, like the, which, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, right? But if you're admitting yeah. him for arthritis, the reimbursement for arthritis is not so high. So it doesn't right. make sense to keep him for two weeks. Yeah. Um, so now
1: to like a oh yeah sorry.
0: Well, so what that ends up meaning basically is that uh, this sharp inequality among providers emerges. Uh, eventually, all the community hospitals basically go under. Um, mm-hmm. They get bought up by the big metropolitan hospitals, which are trying to consolidate market share for complicated reasons. We can go into if you want. Um, and that form of care that those institutions had formerly provi- formerly provided flows into an outpatient setting, and in particular into nursing homes and to, and to home care, uh, which can provide it without the overhead of having to like have a building with a bunch of machines and stuff. Um, right. Or I mean, nursing homes have a building, but barely. Right. So, so the last thing I want to say, or the last thing I want to talk about
1: um, on, on this before we move on to the other question, I guess, is the takeaway of the book. You, you said, you said very early on, you don't want to be nostalgic in your depiction of steel. Um, I saw you had a New York times opinion piece, I think attached to the release of the book where you said, quote, left behind workers cannot travel back in time to blue, to a blue-collar golden age. They need policy to catch up with our workforce and what it's been asked to do. You know, earlier you were saying you kind of wrote this book thinking about what does working class politics mean in the 21st century and so on. So like, you know, if we are to kind of let go of this nostalgic, out of touch, and probably just like unrealistic idea of everyone having a factory job um, again in this country... What, um, like, what do we make of class politics today? I guess the old idea was like everyone was proud of working together in one gigantic unit. You know, a factory floor. They took pride in the fact that they made something. You know, like that 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 Chrysler automobile is a product of all of our hard labor. We can take pride in this and all that stuff. Um, and people have said, well, if it's if you are just like a clerk, if you are doing service work, if you are just um, if you are in maybe more atomized, um, working environments, or if you're just kind of like providing care work that, that doesn't have the same, that doesn't have the same sort of catalyzing organizing effect as, as old school factory work, I guess. I mean, do you think, what, what, what is, what is your kind of, what did you mean when you wrote this um, opinion piece about what class politics would look like in, if, if organized around care work rather than factory work?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this was really the stakes that I, of the book for me and what I wanted to yeah. get at. Um, I mean, first of all, it's worth saying, you know, 14% of all workers in the United States, maybe 15% now are in healthcare and social assistance, which is a census category. In a lot of big northern cities, it's closer to 18, 20, even 22, 23%. It's a huge number of people. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I wanted to try to, and I wanted to make a point, you used the word atomization, and I wanted to make a point that what comes after industrial production is not necessarily atomization, in fact, um, right? I think we have a story that we like to tell in academic history and in kind of whatever discourse about, uh, you know, the kind of New Deal, Golden Age, going up to the mm-hmm. 70s, right? This was the period of social solidarity when institutions of the workplace and the neighborhood and to some extent, maybe religion and so on, and civil society in different ways linked people together and made it possible for them to therefore exert collective power, right? There was a basis for social solidarity in the fabric of life. Um, And that's true. There was a basis for social solidarity in the fabric of life. And it's true that that basis is gone, but Mm -hmm. is that the only kind of basis that can ever exist? Um, Mm -hmm. Right. Or can we imagine new forms of social relationships coming into being that could also carry social solidarity and political solidarity. And so the book is trying to argue that um, the use of the healthcare system to kind of hold society together, even as it became, you know, like more unequal and, you know, uh, was mm-hmm. buffeted in various ways by, the, by neoliberalism, by the, you know, by the rise of finance and the loss of secure work, the use of the healthcare system to hold things together, which wasn't planned, just sort of happened um nonetheless creates a new form of social connection that links working class people together it links them together as co-workers uh to a significant degree right in in these increasingly large workplaces i mean you know if you have two big medical systems in your city right those are two pretty fucking big employers
1: yeah
0: um Not to mention, the you know, the sector, as I said, is the largest in the country and will be the largest in any given place. Yeah. Um, it, but it links them beyond that to uh, the people who depend on them as kind of, you know, earners for their families and the people who depend on them really significantly as caregivers for their mm-hmm. survival. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? When you kind of begin to think about those groups that are, you know, linked socially through the process of caregiving, uh, the argument is that you have something there. That is a potential social basis for quite large scale working class resistance to mm. exploitation and inequality and the kind of and neoliberalism and even, you know, right. capitalism, maybe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, the trick is this, I think, the kind of uh, challenge to figure out. I don't think it's true that we can just like organize unions, maybe reform labor law a little bit and redo another version of the New Deal on this basis. Uh, It would be nice in a certain way if that were true, but I think this industry is too different as we were talking about a while ago from the industrial production that formed the basis of the New Deal. state. Mm -hmm. Um, It's right because it can't generate that kind of uh, pie getting bigger effect, it seems to me. Yeah. Uh, so I think what you'll hear a lot of people say, you know, industrial jobs were bad jobs too. And then the unions formed and they made them good jobs. And that's true, but that doesn't mean the same thing is true now. Right. Yeah. Um, and that means that the first step is harder, right? Like the step, the kind of school of class conflict, which is how Marx described unionizing and striking, right? It's a school of class conflict. Uh, that, that lesson is harder to learn because there's less to win and there's more risk. Mm-hmm. Um, at that first step. However, there's a potential higher equilibrium, right? Where like political class struggle in the care industry, because it implicates so many people, can, can d- generate tremendous political solidarity in theory. Uh, but it has to be a, like, to really deliver material gains, it has to change the shape of that industry. It has to change the shape of our welfare state. And that means like changing the shape of a democracy. So to win anything, you have to win a lot. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, so, do that's you feel a big like? Challenge. Yeah, I mean, do
1: you feel like that's what happened, or that was what? That's what Bernie was attempting to do, and to you know, to a lesser extent, like you know, Warren and other progressives. Like healthcare became. I don't know when this happened. Might have been 16, but certainly by 2020, it felt like of all the issues that the Bernie wing of I don't know, the country was fighting for Medicare for all became the number one issue and it became sort of this both like the most important hierarchically, but also like, you know, metaphorical or metonymical or whatever term you want to use as like this embodies all these other contradictions that also have to be blah, blah, blah. Do you feel like that was an example of how the sort of this wide social base, the fact that everyone is either employed by, but probably more likely has been admitted, you know, has been a patient in the healthcare industry. Yeah. has
0: gotten an insane bill. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Right. Do you feel like that is, yeah, do you think think empirically that's what happened? uh, I think it's a symptom. I think that is a symptom of the way that the healthcare industry has expanded to plug all these sort of gaps in our society. Um, That has generated a symptom of healthcare being this perennial political issue. It's irrationality being a kind of subject of constant debate. And, you know, the closest we can come, I think, to my saying yes to your question is like the enthusiasm of nurses for Bernie, which is a real thing, Mm -hmm. right? uh, Yeah, right. However, I don't think that um, we yet have a social force. You know, we don't have an organization that can do this. We don't have politicians really even who can do this uh, that can articulate the linkage between mm-hmm. the workers in the healthcare industry as a kind of hardcore yeah. of any kind of challenge to, you know, our, uh, our political order and the kind of broader interest in a more humane and democratic and equitable healthcare system. Yeah. I don't think that there's anyone who has fully voiced that yet.
1: Do you have a sense like healthcare has to be the one, I guess? Like, does it have to be the vanguard industry or do you just feel like it's something that gets overlooked and this is, but it could be like, it could be teachers unions. It could be yeah. any sorts of other. Yeah, yeah. I don't think yeah. it has
0: to be the one. I think it has to be one of three or four. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a list? Do you, have a, do you have a top four? Well, I mean, I think or? actually this the discussion that the labor left has been having for like a decade at least now is that okay. what are the so-called strategic industries? Okay, and, yeah. and, you know, I think basically... And there's a few ways of defining them. You know, they're places that where workers could have real economic leverage. They're places mm-hmm. where workers can have kind of social or political power, and they're places where workers seem eager to organize. Basically, uh, so the first one is logistics, right? Like if we could figure okay. out how to organize Amazon workshops, or mm, you know, right, the port yeah. system or the warehouse system, this kind of right. There's real economic leverage there if workers For can sure. hold together. Um, where where are people kind of eager to organize it's uh, this will take us into the next part of our discussion. Yeah, it's exactly. like the uh, you know the knowledge and creative industries, although it's not yeah. so clear what kind of leverage really exists there. Um, and then there's this kind of category of workers who have real kind of social or political power of some kind in principle. I think that is um, broadly the socially reproductive industries, right? That's care and education together, uh, mm, especially. Okay. And I think actually the healthcare, I'll wrap this up by saying the healthcare education comparison, I think is really fruitful. Um, Mm -hmm. They're very similar industries in many ways. Uh, They're pretty similar in size. Healthcare is a little bigger. Um, They both have these kind of histories of in particular being assigned to women um, Mm -hmm. and being unprotected by labor law for a lot of time. The the difference between them is that education remains overwhelmingly public Mm -hmm. as opposed to privatized like healthcare generally is. Mm-hmm. Um and also i think less significantly education is less occupationally stratified so like in a school building i mean there's a principal and there's you know p- from the principal on top to people who like you know custodial workers and uh you know cafeteria workers at the bottom but teachers are like most of the people in the building most of the workers in the building yeah um compare that to a hospital much less a hospital plus nursing homes plus home care. You just have a way more elaborate hierarchy, which makes it harder to establish unity. That's why there's not like a healthcare workers union of a clear, in a clear way that there's like the American Federation of teachers. Right. Um, But the public thing is the most important part because, you know, we, we struggle over education, like politically in our democracy, right. As such as it exists. I mean, like teachers can go on strike and demand, you know, more more investment in the education system and they can win that. Yeah. Uh, in Britain, where the healthcare system is public, the same thing happens. And, you know, if you ever pay attention to like the British election, labor is always like, we want to increase the NHS budget by 4% and hire 20,000 more nurses. And the Tories are like, no, no, 2% and 10,000. And that, that's a debate that they have like in their, you right. know, representative dem- democratic process. We can't do that in our healthcare yeah. system because yeah. we allocate all of that through the market.
1: Right, right, okay. Um, all right. So we should move on to this last question. And this is related, right? Which is the question of this category of the professional managerial class, which I guess I, I kind of get, I think it kind of gets at as a transition, right? This question of, um, you know, if there are these strategic sectors of the working class uh, that we imagine as the vanguard, the kind of forefront of a, a labor, labor movement in the US that leaves um, open this question of, I think for, you know, just a lot of people who write about this stuff, they belong to a different class than just like occupationally belong to probably to a different class, different class background than a lot of people in services or blue collar work or logistics and so on. Uh, This category of professional managerial class was, I think first coined specifically by Barbara and her husband, Michael. Is that his name? John, John, sorry. (laughs) I just reached for a generic name. Sorry. Uh, In the 1970s, a very famous essay on the professional managerial class. You wrote about this essay again in 2019, in the context of the sort of Bernie versus Elizabeth Warren debates as the primaries were heating up. Um, I mean, I I think just as a beginning, starting point, like what, what, what was inspiring you to write about this or to revisit this question in 2019 and has this like the hindsight of knowing how Warren, Bernie, Biden kind of wrapped up in 2020. Does that kind of, how does that kind of change your perspective on, on what you
0: wrote? Uh, yeah, I was leaving yeah. open ended. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I've been interested in in this question in uh, in the Aaron. We should probably.
1: Also, sorry, we should probably first define it. Uh, yeah, like yeah. Okay. Is,
0: yeah. So, professional managerial class. Uh, I mean, they're, uh, Barbara and John Aaron Reich were drawing on a longer tradition, particularly in sociology, um, to try to think about the evolution of the middle class. Um, but basically, they made this argument that. Uh, the middle class is not always the same thing, and the old middle class, which we might also call the petite bourgeoisie of small property owners, basically got obliterated by like the rise of monopoly capitalism by the early you know, the early 20th century yeah, um,
1: corporations and things like that yeah
0: um, and you know the destruction of craft production and this kind of thing um, however, the rise of the large corporation also created demand for a new kind of middle stratum of kind of skilled and credentialed uh, professionals and managers um, who could carry out its functions, carry the you know, the functions of of the corporation in various ways from direct kind of supervisory forms, right. That's the managerial. And this has always been the most problematic part of this argument, I think is lumping these things together. Uh, Mm -hmm. But that's, that's the managerial component Engineers and scientists, you know, to do R&D, but also forms of, the forms of social control uh, that, you know, modern industrial capitalism required. Social work, education, healthcare, which is a kind of social control in a complicated way. Um, and so, you know, the kind of professions emerged in consolidated and kind of clear modern forms in correspondence to you know, 20th century, you know, industrial monopoly capitalism. Um, However, they always had a contradictory character because Mm -hmm. although the functions of professionals involved in various ways uh, implementing and assisting the accumulation of capital, controlling labor, um, the experience of professionals was actually quite similar to that of workers in as much as they lived off of their own labor right. The sale yeah. of their own labor power. Um, and this created the possibility of, a, of left-wing ideology in different ways among professionals, which has in fact, historically been a fairly significant phenomenon and the progressive movement basically is this. Um, so, uh, the Ehrenreichs coined this in particular as a way of trying to understand the defeat as they understand, as they see it of the new left in the sixties and seventies, uh, to diagnose the gap between the new left and the working class by trying to historicize the new left, to ground it in a class analysis of where it came from, which is to say as a student movement, it was a movement of a kind of radicalized BMC. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So like, sorry. So like as a grad student or as an
1: academic are, so the thing the important thing is that it's being defined, not just in terms of income level and education, but about, to what extent do these jobs serve the needs of capital? Right. Right. And so, a, a professor, which is you know the two of us, right? Um, the content of our job is to basically teach our students how to be good workers. Right. And that starts from kindergarten all the way through college. On the other hand, we am, we ourselves are workers. We we take a paycheck from our large employers, and we you know to varying degrees live to some degree of paycheck to paycheck, or you know we don't we don't have saving, we don't have land, you know that we rely. on. We don't have capital. We don't have capital, right? Um, unless, yeah, exactly. So the contradiction, of course, yeah. So that's the contradiction. It's like we are teaching our students how to be good workers, but at the same time, we ourselves are workers. And right. so there's a world in which we identify with our student or not our students, but identify with other, working, other workers in other sectors. There's also a world in which, you know, because perhaps because we're so overly educated or whatever, we identify with the aristocrats and the 1% and our, our colleagues who from, from our Ivy League schools who will go on to open businesses and so on.
0: Right, right. and the point for the Ehrenreichs is this is an indeterminate question, right? You can't right. derive a, an answer to this question in the abstract. It's determined histori- like which way that identification falls. It's determined historically through political struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, in contrast to, in particular, um, a tradition which would classify you and me as petit bourgeois mm-hmm. uh, and therefore unable to right. participate in working class right. politics. We'd be shopkeepers and we're unable to identify with the working class right. or, something. Um, or something. And there are also opposite versions which say we were, we're unproblematically workers. Um, oh, okay. And you know that, that's a real analysis that I think exists too. Yeah. Um, so they're trying to navigate between those. Uh, so I got into, I've been into this, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, I did some research in Barbara Ehrenreich's papers, um, mm-hmm. because she was especially interested in the healthcare industry. and was kind of comment her on it. Um, and you know, then I noticed in the development of the 2020 primaries in late 2019, in that moment, yeah. remember that moment when Liz Warren was ahead by a little bit? Um, mm-hmm. and you know, it started to seem like maybe she was going to coast into it. Um,
1: yeah. like November ish or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, and there was a kind of, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I've always supported Bernie very strongly, but I, I noticed a kind of form of vitriol directed at her, you know, online mm. um, yeah. from an element of Bernie supporters, right. That her, that she is the candidate of the PMC. Right. Uh, and this struck me as interesting and strange because um, I'm misguided because it seemed to me that, in fact, although Bernie wanted to be the candidate of the working class, and I certainly hoped that that, would, that was how things would develop, Bernie mm-hmm. also was a candidate of the PMC. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I canvassed a million times for Bernie. Who else was at those, you know, who else was like, yeah. walking those those turfs those with me? You know, like, I'd go to DSA meetings. Who was in those meetings? Like, let's not kid ourselves. And this yeah, is the okay. point the Aaron writes were trying to make. Like, let's not kid ourselves about socially where we come from because if we mm-hmm. do kid ourselves we're not going to be able to actually deal with the real problem that we have which is how to generate unity with the working class and if that's what we want to do we can't pretend that we already have done it
1: okay um, that makes sense. because because why like what what is the problem if like you and I you know unproblematically pretend like we are of you know that we are like the most downtrodden of the working class. Why does that actually generate political
0: strategic problems? Well, I think at a couple levels. I mean, one, um, just socially, uh, yeah. you know, who are we going to be connected to, who we're going to be able, yeah. be able to influence and mobilize and organize, right. Uh, our connections will reach into some sectors of society and not others. Right. And that's yeah, okay. worth sure. understanding. I think that ideologically also you can make, you could sort of think, and this is, there's a lot of different versions of this and some of them I I would object to, but uh, I think it's fair to say that you might anticipate ideological divergence between, you know, a member of a left wing member of the maybe lower strata of the PMC. That's to say an adjunct professor Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, a school teacher. um, And, someone from the more traditional sectors of the working class, right? That that they may not have the same ideological configuration and there could be a gap between them. And you want to be able to think about, to recognize that gap so you can bridge it. Right. Great. Okay. So that was what led me to write the essay uh, was to try to say, this is a term that, you know, has developed historically to understand the historical process, um, which we can use to locate ourselves but we can't abuse it, right? As a, if, if you try to turn it into a kind of uh, term of abuse, you're not you're not actually going to get its explanatory power. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, that's just a way of denying your own position.
1: In other words, the people who often call each other PMCs are themselves PMCs.
0: Yeah, and it's like <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, you know, folks may know like right, this essay. Uh, kind of to my surprise, somewhat touched off a, like a fair amount of controversy. Um, and a lot of, like, you know, vitriol directed at me. <laughs> you know, I overreacted to in various ways. But um, I was just amazed at how much every single... I mean, I think there are valid criticisms of what I wrote and of this idea. And we can talk about those. Hmm. But in the kind of category of what I think of as, like, hyperbolic or, like, kind of wild criticisms that I got, virtually always they came from people who were in one way or another ventriloquizing themselves or pretending to not be who they were Mm-hmm. Uh, like explicitly like there was a forum on the in the online magazine non-site criticizing the piece uh yeah. in which all the contributors were anonymized which i think fig- eventually oh. I eventually figured out who they were and it's like okay you know I mean half of these people all virtually all of these people are like academics basically yeah exactly and virtually yeah. and half of them like outrank me as academics and they're <laughs> and, you know whatever um or like, yeah, okay, I do I do vaguely remember that. Now. Yeah, or okay. there's a new book out by this uh, professor, Catherine Liu, called Virtue Hoarders, mm-hmm. um, which is a kind of polemic against the PMC. Yeah, which, no relation to me, by the way. Okay, good. <laughs> um, which, you know, I mean, I'll say, like, I've been debating whether or not to respond to it, because, like, it wildly misrepresents what I say. But also, oh. uh, Catherine Liu, if you, like, follow her on Twitter, she's constantly being like, you know, I was at this meeting, uh on my university campus where i'm a professor of media studies and uh you know this other professor said this thing that really offended the truck driver inside of me um and it's like you're not a truck driver (laughs) like yeah yeah um so if that has really struck me as like uh an interesting phenomenon in the response to this is that people really there's something about the experience of the kind of you know, I think instability of, of elements of middle-class experience in life. Um, Yeah. The forms of political radicalization that it's produced that also make it simultaneously very uncomfortable to uh, occupy, you know, recognize and occupy the position that you do actually occupy.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, that's super interesting. Yeah. We might go into like, I don't know, maybe we should go into like psychoanalysis or something, but that is, that's So then, um, the conclusion of your piece though is that there is still this avenue by which you're not saying like oh PMCs should just own up to being PMCs and uh you know, vote for Biden, right? You're still saying there is a path for which PMCs I mean Bernie was a PMC candidate, like let's just be like I, like you said, like let's be honest, like the social base for him, uh he was by far much more working class than any of the other Democratic candidates, right? a lot of his enthusiastic supporters were, you know, educated members of the middle class and these sort of PMC professions. There's no reason to deny that. Um, and you and the piece, you are still saying though, like there is a, there is a, a basis for understanding the, how members of the PMC class and the, uh, and the, and the, the working class who are not of these professions who are really of labor, right. Could still have like a shared, shared interest in common and, and could, you know, mobilized behind a Bernie type candidate. Um, what yeah. is that? What is that path? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I think, you know, the thing that motivated me to, you know, go down this path in the first place was the recognition, the acknowledgement that um, the kind of rising interest in class politics and class struggle and working class, you know, the principle of working class organization and the ideology of socialism actually seems mainly to originate not with the traditional working class. In this historical moment, I don't think this is a general rule, but in this historical moment. Yeah. Uh, seems to originate mainly in the kind of like lower strata of the p m c right and again, this is my own experience as I described it to you earlier, right like be a graduate student be in my graduate student union, start so right, to think right. about marxism all this kind of thing um, sure. and um you know t- so taking seriously then that like the vector of this kind of this is the social vector of this kind of politics emerging as influential and potentially you know effective mm-hmm. um you know, we might wish that it was warehouse workers, right? But it's not, um, mm-hmm. or it's some, but it's more, this other category. Um, how then do we deal with the, like, problem that that poses, right? How do which is the Ehrenreich's problem also. Right. And the thing that I was trying to say is like, we, okay, we have developed this kind of, you know, somewhat distinguished record of, class struggle in, in the professions over the last decade, um, in academia, in journalism, in entertainment in a variety of ways, uh, yeah. in, increasingly even in tech, which has sort of mm-hmm. been seen as the most hostile territory for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and For like unionization. Yeah, and for, you know, uh, working class, or for workers' uh, organization in general. Um, yeah. Right, I mean, the Tech Workers Coalition has, I think, scored some significant successes, etc., Um, So how do we take that and figure out how to uh, bind that into a kind of larger organization or movement, which actually does mobilize and ultimately is led by the kind Mm -hmm. of working class as we would traditionally conceive of it? Um, So, you know, in other words, let me put this simply, we have this problem, right? We have an ideology of working class power, which is espoused not by the working class. And we have a working class that doesn't particularly isn't particularly mobilized or organized. How do we put them together? And it right. seems to me that the best path for doing that draws on the moments when members of the PMC behave in kind of working class ways, which is to say, engage in class struggle, engage in organization, understand mm-hmm. their relationship with their employer in antagonistic terms. Um, right. And if we do that, we can figure out pathways toward a wider solidarity and wider kinds of organization. But doing that necessitates uh, defending the kind of core values that have brought people into the professions in the first place. And this is the kind of point on which the, the essay concludes Um, organization in academia or in journalism or in tech or in entertainment or whatever it might be uh, in social work, in medicine in nursing and teaching um, has been effective in radicalizing professionals when it has uh, mobilized that, something of their professional ideology. Right, uh, hmm. you can't do a good good. You can't do your job well as a right. teacher or a nurse or a professor. You're not accomplishing what you came into the tech industry to accomplish. Uh, right. You're not accomplishing what you came into journalism to accomplish under the terms set by capital. Right. And yeah. so, if you defend the value of your work, that will then bring you, even though it's professional work and there's right. kind of guild-like quality to that, that will still bring you into uh, logically into a kind of wider solidarity with other kinds of workers who, after all, are also opposed to capital and uh, economic terms. Right. That that's kind of the logic of it.
1: Yeah. So, like you say this is a quote from the essay as Aaron Reichs insisted decades ago, the point is not to abandon the PMC, but to turn it against its masters that requires something more than scorn. It means articulating why the ideals embodied in professional ideology are betrayed by the social world in which professionals find themselves. So like you said, if, if you're a professor and you're like, I need to write articles and books, but I have no time to do that because neoliberalism means I get paid nothing and I have to teach, you know, a bajillion classes for no money. Um, I get, and therefore like I identify with like other workers who feel the constraints of all this stuff. I can see that. I think, um, you know, I don't want to go into this now, but I I do think also that that's a good starting point. I guess the question is like, in the end though, like does everyone agree that we have to abolish capitalism or is it just like, I just want to raise versus someone who really does feel like, you know, the condition of labor under capitalism itself is, is the problem, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, this is, uh, I think this is the valid critique of the essay to be honest is that, um, in particular, uh, it would seem. I think I, I I didn't mean to, but I think I flirt with the idea of the PMC as the kind of leading fraction of a working class movement. Right. Right. Um, and I think that's because in our current moment, that has politically been how it played out. I don't think that's good, right? I just think that's yeah. the current situation. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to imagine the ways in which we could fail to. M- Gen, uh, generate enough common interest and kind of common meaning between, yeah. you right. know, radicalized PMC members and more traditional working class uh, yeah. organizations or movements, right? It's very easy to imagine how that gap could open up. Even yeah. if, even totally. what, even after we were, able, you know, e- that's getting two steps ahead, right? Like if right. the next step is building unity across those factions, right. it's very right. easy to imagine how they would then split apart again.
1: Right. If academics just want more tenure, that's not the most progressive... Exactly. (laughs) Right. And (laughs) like, you know,
0: you can imagine the cool thing, thinking about universities, for example, right, as institutions that employ all kinds of people. This is where we started this conversation. Um, Right. And there's 12 different unions on my campus. Uh, and, And you can imagine... Uh, you know, all the different kinds of workers who encounter each other in the context of the university who share an antagonist in the university administration who therefore have some common interest in unity but also are divergent in all these ways you're saying, right? Like if the right, professors yeah, are yeah. going to be like actually just tenure us and then, you know, let us r- raise our research budgets. That's not necessarily going to keep that aligned. Though. So I yeah, think yeah. that it's, uh, that's the risk of this kind of uh, politics. Yeah, but sure. I think it's actually all the more reason to be attentive to and careful yeah. about the category of the PMC as opposed to, uh, to use it like a blunt instrument. Yeah. To be honest about
1: all that stuff. The only, the last thing I'll say is, um, when I read that line about the point is not to abandon the PMC. Yeah. Uh, the, I, the, where I thought you were going with that and you might, you know, be agree with it is that there's also like something about the content of professional life that could be useful. Yeah. Uh, that, that could be appropriated and, uh, you know, at a very basic level, you know, you and I are both academics. We probably have, believe there's some value in academic discourse to actually create ideas that are divergent and critical of the institutions that we belong to. I've, you know, I'll, and this might get us back to the original question about like the, the, you know, new new interest in studying capitalism and economics and all that stuff. In my kind of old age, or I guess through the course of graduate school, I came to actually really respect leftist economists and kind of wish i was a leftist economist i I I had studied economics and done economics for good you know and in a sense i kind of feel like that's what that would be like the ultimate or not the ultimate but that would be like that's rare right most people who most most like leftist criticism stays at the level of like economics is evil um and so like it's this like evil science we don't want to deal with it but if one could actually use the tools of the economists and the in the discipline of economics or to you know to write the histories of capitalism and to write economic histories and to use that to prove you know there's exploitation and there's you know inequality and all. like i find that stuff to be really useful in a way that and is also of course kind of takes for granted that one has a sort of professional education to to to, to arrive at those conclusions in the first place but that's an example in which like pmc can be in theory i think kind of turned for good no
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the key thing here, and I I think I want to spell this out explicitly because I think this often gets misinterpreted, Hmm. um, is that although the content of our work is for the purposes of the accumulation of capital, as you said at the beginning of this part of the discussion, there's also an indeterminacy in that, right? Like what capital needs is that there be universities that are producing stratification or producing credentialed workers who have certain basic sets of skills. Capital doesn't actually particularly need you know the specific class, or that specific class, or assignment, or whatever, right? Or research agenda. I mean, it's like right, okay, right. in like engineering or whatever, maybe, right? Right, but, right. Um, it doesn't care. They don't care what like grad seminar we teach, right? Um, or I mean, it would rather we don't teach any grad seminars, but it doesn't even care what undergraduate classes, yeah, we teach, right? Yeah. Um, and so, the, and that's true across the professions in different ways, right? I mean, any any, any doctor will tell you, uh, right, that like. There's a set of things that are required for like a profitable reimbursement. And then like there's the provision to medicine. And those things are partially overlapping, but not completely overlapping. And that generates these kind of moments of contradiction that are woven through the fabric of everyday life across the professions. Um right, all, like the, the basic contradiction of the professions is present moment by moment in certain ways. Um and it's true, right, that the professions do generate valuable and meaningful ideas. Uh And one can imagine how they could do so more if they were freed from, you know, like the necessity to accumulate that reimbursement for the hospital or whatever, right? Um, I also think the professions generate um, kind of degraded utopias that we can extract something from in terms of our working conditions in weird ways, right? Like tenure is a good example of this. Uh, I don't think that academics need to just fight for tenure for ourselves. Obviously, that would be a kind of craft you know exclusive right. thing that would it, it's not good um but the idea that you should be free from the arbitrary power of your employer um that yeah. you should, they shouldn't be able to fire you a will is a powerful idea right and i think we can argue for why everyone should have access to it um yeah. on that basis i think uh you know the the rhythms of time discipline are very different often in the professions right that we don't Uh, We have more control over the rhythm of our work. And I think, again, that's something that should be true for all working class people, all working people. Um, So I think there's all kinds of elements like that that we can think about. Um, The things that make professional work meaningful and desirable can be appropriated. It's not without difficulty politically, but I think can be appropriated uh, for a broader struggle against capital yeah, I, I have this line in the essay, the point is to, is not to, the point is to turn the PMC against its masters, not to abandon right. the PMC, but to turn right, it against right. its masters. I do think, however, that, you know, one can't imagine a, not, a socialist society with the PMC, right? That we do have to imagine, I think I was not clear enough mm-hmm. about this in the essay. We have to yeah, imagine so. it's abolition as a distinct stratum, um, right? And it's at, because it's existence, right. Right. its existence represents the division of mental and mean and manual labor. Right. Uh, which is something that in fact we want to transcend and and abolish. Um, right. and to, you know, recombine intellectual and manual labor is I think an important goal of the socialist movement. It right. always has been in some form. Um, yeah. so, you know, I think that the point is the point of that line is, is, or I, I, I wish I stated it more clearly is that, um, by trying to preserve but radicalize these values of professionalism, we can yeah. actually transmit them. We can we can make them a part of a struggle struggle for working class people and their conditions of life across the board. Um, yeah. But yeah, that that certainly raises the, the political challenge that we've been talking about about potential hierarchy inside a socialist movement.
1: Yeah, 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 right. And it, it almost kind of reminds me of like again that dual dual labor economy dual. Yeah, dual labor market that you begin your book with. Like those are there are those who are privileged on the inside, and there are those who are kind of excluded from the outside. And you would imagine like a the good outcome would be those on the privilege, the privileges for the inside get universalized. Right. But instead, what happened was those on the outside got universalized, and we have the
0: uberfication of of the global economy, basically. Yeah. Can I say one more thing about this? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> I think though also that because the PMC. I mean, if we accept the Ehrenreich's thesis, which certainly there are plenty of ways one could disagree with it, but if we accept it, uh, right, what they say is it, it its core function is social control. Mm-hmm. So if the PMC is in rebellion, uh, then the mechanisms of social control will presumably not work so well. And I think that's the way in which struggles on our own terms are valuable, even prior to successful unification with a broader working class movement, is because because we operate the culture industry, if the culture if the workers in the culture industry are radicalizing, if the workers in education are radicalizing, if the mm-hmm. you know, skilled workers in healthcare are radicalizing, right. Um, then the ways that these industries serve to reproduce, reproduce capitalism ideologically and materially mm-hmm. are going to be less effective actually. Uh, and this has yeah. historically been always been an element of the process of class formation. Um, you know, the, to give one example, the, Organization and struggle of culture workers in the 1930s and 1940s, you know, in radio and journalism and Hollywood, you know, at Disney uh, was actually a really important component of how working class Americans came to develop a certain kind of class consciousness was because the struggles of culture workers were imprinted Mm -hmm. in cultural commodities. That's to say, in Mm -hmm. radio shows, in in the newspaper, right? They were in various ways. The cultural commodities people consumed reflected class conflict and so allowed working class people in the factory to recognize class in a certain way. And I think there's a way that our struggles, you know, in the PMC can have a version of that effect.
1: Yeah. So the fact that people in media and academia and Twitter are talking about unionization, we shouldn't necessarily, you know, it's not the same thing as saying the whole country is super left now, but that we've probably, we don't also want to, uh, what's the word? underestimated either right that that actually does have it's good when more people identify with um think about themselves in terms of class position rather than kind of obfuscate it
0: yeah or when you know your doctor or your nurse is like you know is telling you about how shitty the administration is or whatever right um then people start to think like oh gee what like how do i relate to that and that's good yeah 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 no that's i think that's a fair point okay we've gone on for a while um yeah,
1: It's one of the long ones. But uh, where can so the book is the next shift. I'm sure you can. You know, people can Google it. Anything else you want to plug, like website, Twitter handle?
0: Nah, it's fine. Just a book. Yeah, Just get the book.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People and people can find you. You know, all over the place on on the internet. But uh, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for uh, talking with us today.
0: Thanks for having me. This is
1: great.